leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. A surge in merger and acquisition activity in the life sciences is expected this year, according to a new report from EY. The company's annual M&A Firepower report says increased competition, new sources of capital, and the change in U.S. corporate tax laws will drive greater deal-making in the sector. We spoke to Jeff Green, EY Global Life Sciences Transaction Advisory Services Leader, about the report the drivers of the activity, and why non-traditional players in the sector may be in a better position to make a splash in 2018. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks very much for having me today. We're going to talk about the M&A landscape, why many people are expecting 2018 to be a big year for M&A, and, and whether the new tax bill we're going to see any mega mergers. Several years ago, EY introduced its Firepower Index. Can, can you explain the index, what it represents, and what does it say about where we might be in terms of M&A activity in 2018? Uh, sure. Uh, firepower is really a basic measure of the financial capacity um, to, to invest in M&A. Um, it, it looks at, at uh, cash available, looks at debt capacity, looks at market capitalization. Uh, and the, the trend is definitely on an aggregate basis for the sector, uh, positive over the last few years. Um, plenty of, uh, plenty of firepower out there. I think as you, as you alluded to in your introduction, um, what, what, what's maybe held back activity a little bit is in 2017 was the uncertainty around the, the tax legislation, uh, and in particular, re- repatriation of offshore cash, at least for U.S.-based companies. So now, with that uncertainty resolved, um, as, as you noted, that there's is definitely more optimism um, about M&A in, in 2018. You have a chart in, in your report showing market share among drug companies. How unusual is this industry in that no player has more than a 5% market share? Is that is that something peculiar to the drug industry, or, or does that foretell an inevitable consolidation? Um, I, I, yeah, I think I think I would, I would start with the latter point. I think this is, um, well, I might not call it peculiar. Uh, it's that the relatively, that this industry is, at least when we look at them on a macro basis, as, as we show with this chart, is still is relatively fragmented, and so while we haven't had um, many really large um, 
uh, or so-called mega mergers, really since since uh, 2009. Uh, in any volume, um, you cer- certainly could could uh, make the economic rationale that there could be more going forward. And again, with the with the availability now of of this offshore cash potentially, with um, you know more optimism generally about economic growth. And all the other pressures that the industry is facing around drug pricing, drug and device pricing, for example, uh, you could definitely make the case that greater um, likelihood of, uh, of seeing some mega mergers um, in 2018 and beyond than we have over the last several weeks. I think that was probably a, a note of disappointment from some industry watchers that we didn't have any of those type of blockbuster deals. Is there a rationale for them happening in 2018 beyond just? The, the repatriation of dollars because of the tax bill. Yeah, absolutely. As I as I mentioned a minute ago, uh, the continued pressure on pricing and keeping price increases down or or even keeping them non-existent, with pressure on margins, um, the, the, the need to uh, to reduce costs has has also been a driver in the past of mega mergers. The um, uh, desire to irrationalize supply chains has also been a driver of mega mergers in the past. Um, it's, it's also, uh, you know, people have looked to uh, improve their RNA, R and D odds, uh, R&D through mega mergers in the past, which haven't, haven't worked out that way, uh, in, in most cases. But the other reason, the back office reason, merge, the increased scale to reduce fixed costs over Larger volume that, that continue to be the you know, major sort of fundamental economic drivers of, of, of mega mergers. One thing that's likely to spark some activity in 2018 is a series of expected divestitures. What do you see on that front, and what will that tell us about the broader environment? Uh, exactly. I think that in uh, we have a couple of uh, couple of divestitures that have been talked about, particularly in consumer health. Um, we also see the potential for continued divestitures. Some of the specialty pharma and generics companies that, uh, in hindsight, at least look over leveraged. Um, a, a lot of those are put together with uh, a series of acquisitions that were based in part on fairly large price increases that haven't haven't been borne out. Uh, and so we find some of those companies find themselves with, with too much debt and not enough growth. And you know, th- w- there's there's definitely uh, potential there for increased divestitures of you know, various assets in, in, into the marketplace. There may also be um, some pressure there for mergers, or or they, they could even end up be, becoming acquisition candidates from some of the other larger uh, players with with more firepower. I think a, a few years ago, there was a, a, a theme that Big Pharma was now going to have to compete with Big Bio for, for M&A deals. Um, is that true this year? Do you think there's going to be competition between Big Bio and Big Pharma? And, and are we going to see anything like we saw with the patent cliff in, in pharmaceuticals a few years back with biotech expiring patents driving the need for, for acquisitions or at least deal-making? I think I think yes to both of those. Starting with the last one, I think you are starting to see um, pressure on the big biotech companies to replace um, revenues for drugs that are going off patent, or where where revenues have just revenue growth has just have just slowed down. You 
think about that, particularly in the HCV space. Um, in terms of competition between pharma and biotech, yes, a- absolutely, particularly for the most desired assets. Uh, and uh, as, as we said earlier, both, both groups have plenty of firepower. In fact, biotech has been relatively um, reluctant to in the past, but I think because of some of the other pressures that we've talked about, uh, we, we would expect that there's a fair amount of for them to ramp up their M&A uh, in 2018. Some of the potential acquirers had stumbles in 2017. Does there any vulnerability out there that make uh, a potential acquirer more of a target in 2018? Uh, that's, a, that's a general theme across the board is your stock price is based on certain expectations, R&D results, for example, future R&D results. Um, when those expectations aren't met uh, and your stock price takes a hit, um, it always increases your, your vulnerability to, uh, you know, potential uh, convention by investors, particularly activist investors, and, and we've seen some of that activity or continued activity by activist shareholders in the industry. And it just, it more, more generally, uh, the dissatisfaction, dissatisfaction among your, um, you know, leads to the, you know, management rethinking what its growth plan should be and they, they make them a little bit more inclined to do M&A. We, we talked about the competition between big pharma and big bio, but there seems to be a, a, a far, far more three-dimensional level of competition than in the past. One thing you expect to see is is Asian buyers and, and particularly China become more active. What do you see on that front, and how might it reshape the M and A environment? Uh, a couple of factors there. Um, you know, lots of lots of financial capacity, lots of firepower um, in uh, among financial players, uh, as well as as well as corporates that have growth ambitions. Um, I think that the the Chinese government, in particular, has been more selective about which sectors uh, it, uh, it's allowing or encouraging uh, outward investment. Uh, I, I think I think there is is among those that that, that are you know you need to see some some uh, some outward investment. Uh, China. Uh, the the other dimension is that those investments, uh, particularly minority investments, strategic investments. Make it easier for emerging, smaller and emerging uh, biotech companies to t- take their drugs farther along the development cycle uh, and delay an M and A exit, if you will. So, th- th- those are some of the factors we see. You know, so let's say non non M and A, non traditional sources of capital, at least historical forces that we see at work coming coming out of say Asia there. And, and is there any theme to the types of investments those companies might be looking for in terms of of technology or, or indication? Uh, it's been fairly it's been fairly uh, widespread. The uh, it could be all of the above. I think looking for new markets, looking for the, their own products to the extent that they're they're in in your various therapeutic areas. It can also be looking looking for uh, distribution. It can also be a search for uh, innovation, innovative products and technology and RNA, R&D capabilities uh, to bring back home to their home markets. The other thing you talk about in this year's report is the rise of the non-traditional player and, and the fact that 
Some of these non-traditional players may have more firepower for M&A deals than biotechs and farmers. What are you thinking of here, and, and what's the likelihood that a non-traditional player makes a, a big splash in the life sciences in 2018? Uh, I, I think it's inevitable that we see, you know, one if not more uh, substantial investments, whether it's uh, their strategic investments or they end up being, you know, 100% M&A deals. Um, you know, we, we've heard, we've heard, you know, we, we, we've seen plenty of examples of that over the past few years. We've heard, you know, additional speculation that some of the big technology players are thinking about, you know, how to participate in, in healthcare generally, whether it's in the supply chain or, or other, other ways in the, the customer interface, for example, the patient interface. Um, so you, that, that sort of, um, that, that potential for disruption coupled with a tremendous amount of, of firepower among these companies. And there, there's also a chart in our report that kind of compares, um, the firepower of, of a view of the tech companies versus sort of the top, uh, you know, 65 or so companies that we, uh, that we follow in the life sciences space. And, and you find that the, the, the tech companies firepower is, at least on par with, if not in excess of, uh, of, of that entire group of life sciences companies. So there's plenty of capacity out there if they wanted to make a move to buy into the supply chain um, or to buy into, a, you know, another segment of, uh, of the life sciences and healthcare space. We expect there to be continu- continued activity there going forward to just to kind of give a long-winded answer to, you, to your very good question. Are you thinking here, though, of things like bioinformatics and digital health and things where technology and biology meet up with each other or moving into things like actual drug development? I think less less drug development, more, um, you know, as I say, the, the, the patient interface um, using using the technological prowess um, to create to help create platforms of care in which you are you're consolidating integrating the various sources of information uh, and data that's available. Um, it, it could also be making supply chains more efficient and more transparent. Uh, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about the industry has talked a lot about drug, drug pricing and the fact that there are you know, lots of different steps in the process from manufacturer to patient, manufacturer to uh, to, to physician. But to the extent that some of these companies could provide more transparency and more efficient, more efficiency, um, that, that even some CEOs and you know, pharma CFOs have commented on the fact that that could be good for the industry. The, so both about their patient engagement and uh, and and building sort of data data uh, enabled healthcare platforms as well as improving the supply chain. The M and A deal making environment generally rests with the power rests with the guys with the money when capital markets may be unwelcoming. But there, there appears to be plenty of money out there right now, giving emerging technology companies choices. How does that shape the deal making environment today? Uh, it, it's a very good question. I, I think that it means a number of, of things. That that um, the most desirable. Acquisition targets are going to be fully valued in the end, um, which which uh, means that the potential buyers are going to need to be very clear on their strategic rationale, uh, as well as rigorous in their in their valuation and uh, and creative in structuring, 
to that they're they're uh, sharing risk and rewards with the with the selling company appropriately. Um, you know, we're, we we don't don't like to talk about specific deals or companies, but you can look at a creative structure like what J and J did uh, with Vectilian and how that deal was structured, uh, in, in which the uh, basically the the R and D um, part of the business was carved out and uh, and stayed basically stayed with the sellers as a way to uh, to uh, uh, satisfy the, the the needs of both buyer and seller going forward. Um, so it's about it's about rigorous strategic uh, and financial due diligence evaluation. It's also about creative structuring in order to uh, accommodate the fact that the m- most desirable targets have alternatives. They have alternative buyers, and they probably, as we've said earlier, have alternative sources of capital in order to fund future development. Is there a threat that prices get too frothy, that it may keep buyers at bay in this big 2018 year everyone's expecting may not live up to their uh, expectations? It's it's always a threat, and it's it's always, as you know, been a topic for years and years. Uh, but it seems like uh, you know, the, the secular trend is that equity prices continue to go up uh, generally, uh, and and um, it keeps some people away, but but others find the uh, you know, the economics make sense for them to to pay up for the uh, the, you know, the most interesting assets, but. And hopefully that they can add value to as part of their own uh, their own company. Jeff Green, EY Global Life Sciences Transaction Advisory Service Leader. Jeff, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Dan. Much appreciated. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week. Subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.